Hello everyone, I'm JD. I'm Fraser. And you're listening to the 150 Marchers at the Bar. Where we speak to current LGBTQ plus campaigners and activists about their work, why they do it and other stuff. Today we're talking to award-winning black feminist activist, writer and public speaker, Shardine Taylor-Stone. Shardine is a regular on the Pride Power List. In May 2017, she won the British LGBT Award for Outstanding Contribution to LGBT Life, and in 2018 was nominated by Diva Awards for LGBT Activist Campaigner of the Year, and in 2020 was nominated for Diva's Unsung Hero Award. Shardine founded Black Girls Picnic, a movement in collective self-care for black women and girls and Stop Rainbow Racism, which worked to stop racist performances in LGBTQ plus venues. As a writer, educator and anti-racist activist, Shardine often uses music, art and fashion history to instigate socio-political analysis. She lectures and facilitates workshops on topics such as black feminist histories, black queer identities, Afrofuturism, music subculture histories and black involvement in the esoteric, weird and how she describes it, the downright bizarre. What led you into activism? I mean, I really started getting involved when I was like 17, 18, and that was the Iraq war. And um, that's kind of how I started from there. And then I, I was just generally more sort of just involved in kind of left-wing type stuff. And um, gradually as I got sort of more like out in my own sexuality, then that kind of led to more LGBT queer activism. So that's generally like the kind of tra- trajectory of how I kind of got involved. What are the main obstacles? I mean, it's quite an interesting one. I mean, because our community is very sort of diverse, and I don't just mean like, you know, race-wise or gender, I just mean politically, you know. So, I mean, I think sometimes people forget that and think that we're all a bunch of lefties, which is just not the case at all. And um, so I think sort of like major obstacles really is just working through that and recognising that. But also, um, you know, particularly with rainbow racism, that was from a sort of particular section of the community that was mostly sort of white and male and cisgender. And I think sometimes when you're doing things within your own community it's sort of like a sort of personal hurt and the sort of reactions are much more visceral than they are than if you're just doing like a general thing about the government or something like that so I think that's been the hardest thing and I think because we're all obviously experiencing some different forms of oppression and I think sometimes it can crowd our judgment to what's happening to other people and then we can end up being sort of quite in ways quite narcissistic around that so we don't try to open up and recognize what's happening for other people i think in terms of like stuff around to do with race i think the community's definitely gotten a lot better in the last five years like i've seen a huge um switch around in those conversations and i think now the next fight i think is um around trans rights as well could you tell us about your rainbow racism campaign and how it came about well, I mean, how it came about is someone actually, because I knew I did a lot of sort of black feminist stuff anyway, and they sent me a flyer. They went to the RVT one time, and they sent me a flyer of um, the performance, Charlie High's performance, and then I sort of had a look at, you know, sort of the YouTube videos and all of this kind of stuff. And I just couldn't believe what I was seeing, because it felt like there was still a kind of, a kind of humour in our community that had been allowed to fester that hadn't really changed since the 1970s. If that was kind of in the mainstream, then it, people would have been, I mean, I don't think it would have even been made, but there seemed to be this kind of gap within our community where I thought it was okay. 
So um, I challenged it with a petition. I think it wasn't to actually just like end Charlie Hire's career. It was more to do with just actually just stopping the act and actually having a sort of conversation and change about you know what these performances are i think particularly it really stood out at the rvt because you know even just something as simple as maybe your young person who's just come out you're looking for somewhere to go for the first time you might go and google and type in i don't know gay venues in london or something and that is the first place that's going to come up and that's where you're going to go and my thought was imagine being that new person and you're going there and then that's what you see and what does that say about us and what does that say about our community so that was my main concern so um, there was a lot of support, but also uh, a lot of um, quite really nasty, vicious backlash. Um, I had a lot of death threats. I had memes made out of me, which were quite entertaining. I do keep them for a laugh, actually. And um, just like really silly, really silly stuff like that. And, you know, so much came out of that, not just about the racism, but actually also like how our community speaks to each other when there's a problem and like a general culture of this kind of real sort of putting down of each other for entertainment um, so that on went on for a bit and then after a while Charlie then put that character to bed and um, then they moved on and you know obviously went to RuPaul's um, Drag Race and did some great stuff and um, the RVT then um, made a commitment to actually sort of diversify the acts that they do have on the nights that they put on and now we are here we are now where they have um the rainbow flag with the black and brown stripes hanging outside so you know sometimes you have to go through that really kind of grinding awful experience for there to be a positive outcome yeah since then you know we saw all the different sort of prides as well sign up to a kind of um, manifesto of anti-racism that I made that was specifically for our community. I think it just kind of opened the door for a lot of people to speak about things that they felt was happening already. Mm. And sometimes you just need to be that person to, to really kind of walk through and say, hey, what the hell was going on? And then people will then gradually get behind you. Do you think there's something in your personality that makes you an activist? It's an interesting question, actually, when I think about the sort of activists that I know. It's like you genuinely want to see a change and you have to be quite stubborn. You have to be a bit of an arsehole, really, to be honest. I mean, otherwise I just don't think you're going to be acceptable. If you're too nice, if you're too nice and too sort of like, oh, you'll just get walked over. You do need to be very stubborn and a little bit pig-headed sometimes. It when not in general, but when you're doing when you're doing that activist work, you have to put a certain kind of mindset on because it is tough. And I think and that's the kind of quality that I see in most people. That and diplomacy as well. But you know, you have to have that toughness. How do you take care of yourself? I mean, that is a tough one. I mean, definitely during the um, Rainbow Racing campaign, um, it got to the point where I actually had to order some pepper spray and I had quite a lot of anxiety for quite a long time after that going um, into sort of queer spaces because sometimes I wasn't sure if someone was pointing at me or coming up to, to say hello to me for a positive reason or a negative reason. Even though it was always a positive one, people are always like, oh, thank you so much for saying that. So that anxiety because of, you know, the death threats and stuff and just the kind of hateful comments that you would get. 
So um, things like just sw switching off social media for a bit or just doing other things that, you know, I have an interest in that have nothing to do with politics at all. So like cooking, I like sort of really sort of geeky, nerdy stuff, engaging in that sort of thing. So I don't, I'm not constantly sort of thinking about politics all the time. And I think that's where a lot of burnout comes. But also I think I've gotten a lot better in terms of, um, especially about working groups and stuff, just allow people to, um, I guess, delegate or take on work. You don't have to do all the work yourself and um, trying to sort of work more in, in groups to kind of ease the workload for everybody. And um, I think that's more the kind of way that I'm, that I'm working now. You're currently studying to become a lawyer. Could you tell us how your activism sits within this new chapter? Yeah, I mean, I think really um, it's just a sort of natural progression for me. Um, I've kind of gone, done it the other way. A lot of um, law, law students become activists whilst I'm an activist becoming a law student. So um, I think just going, once I sort of um, really kind of got more to grips of like understanding like how we can really kind of get things changed at a kind of national level, I think at that point I was like, okay, I really need to understand, you know, the law and I just found enough of it really. And um, I went through an experience where I uh, had to um, go through a kind of employment tribunal process and I just did it all myself near enough. My partner was just like, actually, you should really look into doing this because the skill set is very similar to an activist skill set is problem solving for people and obviously doing a lot of advocacy all of that kind of stuff so um it's just sort of moving into that side so i, I really want to um hopefully uh, specialize in employment law but also particularly working with people you know experiencing sort of discrimination and race lgbt and that sort of thing because i think like i said earlier often sometimes we forget that you know we also have jobs we also have like all the other stuff as well that really affects us and sometimes if we get too focused on purely just lgbt rights then we forget that these things are actually connected to other things as well and i think that's what i'm trying to do what makes a good ally and how can we be better allies i'm sort of going off the sort of language of allyship a bit actually because i feel right. like in some ways what's happened it's become like quite performative and um whereas you know i'm more interested in the sort of concept of solidarity which i feel like is slightly different i feel like it implies that there actually has to be some work that's put in there rather than just saying, oh, you know, yes, well, of course I support trans rights or rights for LGBTQ people of colour and then that's it at the end of the day. There needs to be a bit of meat to that. So yeah, I mean, I think in terms of like practical things as well, just small day-to-day -day things like challenging people when you hear sort of something transphobic or that sort of thing, uh, or racist, you know, offering help and support to, to get involved. I mean, it's quite sort of base level stuff, but um, in a way, like I feel like some of the good experiences of sort of allyship, I guess, that I've witnessed quite recently, um, there was like a sort of transphobic comment made in a um, Labour Party group that I was in and being the queer person there, I was like, okay, here I go. I have to sort of step in and do the whole chat about it. And um, I didn't have to because actually um, one of my um, straight male comrades already was in there doing the long chat and educational process for the rest of us. And that was really, really great. And that's the kind of solidarity that I'd like to see um, take place more. Again, it's about, you know, spreading out the work that other people have to do. With allyship, 
think often what can happen is that people don't see their struggles connected to the people that they say they're in allyship with. Whereas with with solidarity, it's about understanding that in a way that you are still experiencing some form of oppression. You might be a, you know, white, middle-class, straight or gay cisgender man but your homophobia is tied up with transphobia is tied up with racism is tied up and that's just a slightly different way of thinking so it's not just like a kind of you know sort of charity kind of handout to help this sort of poor person over there and you don't need it it's actually understanding that actually their liberation is also my liberation and I think that's the difference for me that changes how people think about you know what are the goals that we want so rather than just being like so with the kind of allyship type stuff let's just be nice to you know trans trans women of color you know and they'll go through the usual kind of statistics and all that kind of stuff and it's like well actually when you're thinking about in terms of a solidarity i guess a more class-based kind of organizing once trans women have access to housing once trans women are not having their lives cut short, have access to good healthcare, all that kind of stuff, that intrinsically makes things better for everybody else. Because once we've sorted that out, we're all going to be okay. And I think that's why we need to be thinking about in terms of solidarity. What's interesting about this 150 marches as well, and the kind of politics those people had at the time, I mean, a classic example is um, lesbian and gay support the minors. You know, it wasn't just, oh, that's being allyship with minors because, you know, they're having a hard time. It was understanding that they were facing the same oppression. He saw, like, the police beating up minors on television or something like that and was like, well, that's what they're doing to us. So it's that, that back and forth thing. And then obviously the miners then went and block voted for gay rights to become part of Labour Party policy. So that is solidarity. Whereas with an allyship type kind of motive, it would be like, well, let's just, you know, say that, you know, we support miners. What would you say to your teenage self? I'd tell them to fucking do some, actually do their studies. That's what I'd tell them to do. Sort of planning around, spend the next 10 years not doing what you want to do i think also just silly things actually it'd be like you don't need to date men you know you could just move to london and find some cute masculine center people they do exist that's fine and um don't get those tattoos on your back and um i think also just keep going actually when i look back at um where i was politically quite young sometimes i'm like i was quite impressed with myself it sounds really arrogant but um and find your people and what do you think they'd say back to you i don't know i i I think um i'd hope they think i was really cool i think that's about it Yeah, I think that's what I'd like to impress my teenage self. In a way, I'm probably always just trying to impress my teenage self in what I do and trying to sort of do all the things that I dreamed about doing when I was younger and um, just ticking off those boxes. I would like to mentor my younger self in that way. Because, you know, our teenagers are so formative, aren't they? They create... Well, a lot of all our anxieties and insecurities are sort of developed around that time. So I think in a way, a lot of our ambitions are really sort of tied up in that. And I think for me, you know, because I grew up in a single parent family and we were quite poor, a lot of that is sort of achieving the things that I wish I had at that time. So I think that's the thing that still really drives me, even now, you know, 20, 25 years later. 
So that was Shardine. Thank you, Shardine, for such an inspiring and thought-provoking chat. We're so grateful that you took some time out to speak to silly little Fraser and me. So thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you. So until next time, we shall see you at the bar. Bye. The 150 Marchers was written by Fraser Flintham and JD Stewart and edited by Fraser Flintham. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at 150marchers and on Instagram at 150marchers. You can find our At The Bar episodes and our journey to find the 150 marchers on Highbury Fields on your preferred podcast listening device now.